Hello and welcome to this episode of Tech Personal Finance. I'm your host, Mike Troxel. It is tax time, and today we're going to cover seven key insights to alleviate taxes and pain, including a big one at the end that you do not want to miss. I know your time is valuable, so we're going to get right into it. Again, the goal here is to alleviate taxes and pain, not just for this tax season, but for future tax seasons as well. We're not going to cover all of the nooks and crannies of tax strategies as we can get into those in future episodes, but today is all about filing season. The first key insight is to not file too early. Yes, you heard that right. Do not file too early, particularly if you have a brokerage account. If you do have a brokerage account, it is not uncommon for you to receive a revised or corrected 1099 a few weeks after your initial 1099. Common custodians that hold brokerage accounts and issue these documents might be Vanguard, Schwab, Fidelity, TD Ameritrade, and so on. Almost everybody receives their initial 1099 from their brokerage account in February sometime but it's not uncommon for a few weeks later, well into March, for you to receive a revised or corrected version. I would guess this happens maybe 10 or 20% of the time. In the event that you are in a rush and you do file too early, it's not the end of the world, but it just takes a little more time since you may have to go back and amend the return and it might cost you a little more money depending on if you're using an accountant or some software. It is okay and I encourage you to get your tax stuff ready maybe even prepare your return early. But if you have a brokerage account that is issuing a 1099, it will not hurt to hold off for a few more weeks. Insight number two is to find out why you owe more than you expect, if that applies to you. And if that does not apply to you, you can skip over to insight number three. But again, if you owe more than you expect, then it's worth looking into. For most people with equity compensation, their income is heavily tilted towards Form W-2. And that's the first place I usually look. If you're expecting a small balance due or maybe a refund and you're getting an unfriendly surprise, I would first check your withholding on your W-2. So how do I do that? First, pull up Form W-2. Usually it takes a couple of seconds and you can look at the first two boxes and that's what they're titled, Box 1, Box 2. Box one is your wages or your taxable income from that employer. Box two is your federal income tax withheld. So how do I know if it's low? Well, first you want to find out generally what tax bracket you're in. And you can easily look it up online. You can Google 2022 tax brackets and look at your income if you're single or married filing jointly and find out what your tax bracket is. And for a lot of folks listening to this, they'll probably be between the 24 and 37% bracket. In this example, let's just go with the 32%. And again, for someone in the 32% bracket, this does not mean all of your income is taxed at 32%. That just means that's the highest tier you've reached. It's actually more of a bucket system than a bracket system. Everybody starts out getting taxed at 10% for their first portion of the first bucket of income. Then the next bucket is taxed at 12%. And the next bucket's, you know, fills up, maybe that's 22% and so on. So if you're in the 32% bracket, you have income that's getting taxed at various rates. And so your average tax rate is a lot different than your tax bracket. So even though you're in the quote 32% bracket, 
your average tax rate might be 22%. So when you're looking at your W-2 withholding, just do a quick calculation with box one and box two, see how much of your income was withheld. Generally, and again, this is very, very general. If I see that ratio between box one and box two, around 20, maybe like high teens or you know, hopefully low 20s, you know, maybe again, plus or minus, usually the withholding is okay or reasonable. But sometimes it sticks out like a sore thumb if it's closer to 10 or maybe 12%. Not even knowing the full situation, if I see a number that low, then the taxpayer is usually very underwithheld. Typically, if someone says, why do I owe so much money? All I had was this W-2 job. The first place I would look is to see if I see you know, 10, 12, 14% withholding. And if so, I know we need to make an adjustment. So in the event this applies to you, you know, what do we do? Well, the easiest way is if there's an internal HR portal at your job that allows for easy adjustments, that's a good place to start. But commonly, you need to pull up the IRS form W-4, and you might need to resubmit this to your HR or payroll team. This is typically one of the first forms you fill out on your first or second day at the job. The two key steps on this form to pay attention to are 2C and 4C. If you're unmarried or if you're married and your spouse does not have an income, you can skip step 2C. But if you are married and your spouse also works, step 2C is very important. If you are married, you think all you have to do is select the married box in step one, right? There's single, there's married, easy. But essentially, this step is asking, are you the sole earner or is your spouse also earning? Even though it's not really asking that, but that's essentially what it is. And for a lot of folks we work with, not everybody, but for a lot of them, their spouse is also earning. So if you check the box in 2C, essentially you're telling the IRS, yes, my spouse is earning, so we are in a higher tax bracket and please withhold appropriately. If all you do is select the married box in step one and you skip over the box in 2C, the box 2C, you're saying my spouse is not earning money, therefore we're in a lower tax bracket, so please withhold less money. And again, this is one of the most confusing IRS forms. I don't know why it's unfortunate because it applies to almost everybody with a job. It's quite confusing, but it is very important. And the second step I mentioned other than 2C is step 4C. And 4C is important if your withholding is still not where you want it to be after you check the appropriate boxes up above. Step 4C is where you make an election to withhold extra money per paycheck. For some people, that might be an extra $100 or $300, $500, $1,000, whatever it is. So you can have your regular withholding, which is taken care of in step 1 and step 2C. And step 4C, again, is optional. is just selecting an extra manual amount that you're going to withhold if you need it. Insight number three is around your 401k. And if you're planning to or if you would like to max out your 401k. Sticking with that same W-2, that form is a great spot to check your 401k contributions. And again, not everybody needs to do it, but if you want to max out your 401k, here's a good place to check. For 2022, the maximum contribution for most people was 20500 Generally, that goes up a little bit every year. For example, 2023, it's 
$22,500. So again, look at your form W-2, go to box 12, and you might notice there's a few different box 12s, which is odd. They each have different codes. So in particular, you want to look for code D or code AA. Usually it's code D, but you might see AA. Code D is your traditional or regular, more common pre-tax 401k contributions. And for the most part, that's what I typically see, and that's where the number is going to be. But if you made an election to contribute some Roth dollars into your 401k, those would be with code AA. So for most people, if you want to see if you maxed out your 401k last year in 2022, check out the combined number for box 12 code D and box 12 code AA and see if it totals up to a max. Key insight number four is to find out if you itemize your deductions or if you're taking the standard deduction. One is not better or worse than the other, but it is important to know, and I'll tell you why. Millions of Americans who were previously itemizing are no longer due to tax reform over five years ago in 2017. I would guess millions of those that used to itemize probably still think they are itemizing, but they're not. And it's not really a big deal dollars and cents wise. And for the most part, it doesn't make much of a difference, but it's important to know for making the certain decisions, mainly around a few topics. And those could include charitable contributions, medical bills, mortgage interest, and other items. Oftentimes we hear the term tax deductible almost as it's part of a sales pitch, whether it's from a charity or a 501c3, or sometimes in the conversation of buying or renting a home. Oh, this is tax deductible or that's tax deductible. You know, I get to write off my mortgage interest and so on. Right? We hear these different terms. And the way those terms are thrown around, they're using tax deductible, almost like saying a game is winnable. Winnable and winning are very, very different. Just like deductible and actually deducting it is very different. So if you gave money to an organization and it was not deductible, does that mean the organization is not legitimate? No, no, not at all. It, it certainly is. But you just might not be itemizing your deduction. And it's not really a decision you're making on your tax return. It's more so what is the optimal path forward? In 2017, after tax reform, what they did was they increased the freebie amount or the standard deduction, meaning every year when you're filing your taxes, you have your standard freebie amount, and then you have your other itemized amount. And the itemized amount is the total when you add up all the other stuff. And that might be property taxes or state income taxes. That might be, you know, what do you give to charity? That might be some mortgage interest and some other items. So we see how big that number is. And then we compare it to the freebie standard deduction amount. And whichever one is larger, you're going to take it. So it doesn't really matter that much if your mortgage interest was deductible before and now it's not. Again, you're still selecting the larger deduction. You're selecting the larger amount. But it may matter if one of the reasons for buying a home or giving to charity was because of the tax deduction, right? If that was the main reason and it's not necessarily true, then you know maybe you would like to know that. For example, if I'm going to give extra money to you know XYZ charity because it's tax deductible, 
Well, again, maybe you still want to give money to the charity. Maybe you still should, for sure. But it's certainly worth it to double check to see if it is indeed tax deductible. It's all great information, right? But how do we find out if we're itemizing or if you're taking the standard deduction? For 2022, for a 2022 tax return, you can go to the main page, that main form, which is Form 1040, page one of your tax return. You can comb down the page a little bit, go to line 12, and there you should see a number. If it's more of a round number, that generally means you're taking the standard deduction. If you're single, that number might be 12,950. And if you're married, it's usually double that. So 25,900. If you see one of those numbers, that means you're taking the standard deduction. If you see a larger number, maybe a more random number like 14,712 or something like that, that's a good indicator that you are itemizing. And of course, there is a form where you can really find out, and that would be Schedule A of your tax return. And if you're looking through your documents or PDF and you don't see a Schedule A, then you're not itemizing. Key insight number five is to pay attention if you're switching tax preparers or tax software. The reason why is there are tax carry forwards, such as capital losses or credits, that you may get to carry forward to future years if you do not fully use them up in the previous year. Typically, if you stick with the same preparer or the same software, usually that information is carried forward automatically in the software program. So usually you're okay if you're not making a change, though you still should certainly pay attention and keep track of it. The real risk comes if you're switching software or prepares. That's when you really want to double check if your carry forwards are indeed carrying forward. When it comes to capital losses, there's no limit to how much of a gain you can report, but there is a limit to how much of a loss you could take advantage of in a given year. The lowest you can go in a given year, netting out gains versus losses is negative $3,000. And again, that's the net number. So if you had $100,000 of gains, you could take $103,000 of losses, but anything more than that is going to get carried forward. Similar with AMT, which applies to a lot of folks with incentive stock options, you could pay a good amount of AMT in one year due to an ISO exercise. This usually comes back to you in the form of a credit in future years. You pay that money to the government and you would like to get that money back. You should be able to find a list of your carry forwards, if you have any, on your tax return summary page. Insight number six is around doing your own tax return. And the real question is, should you really be doing it yourself? And I don't want you to misinterpret this, as many of you listening are highly capable of doing your own taxes. But you're also capable of a lot of things. Adding one more caveat, I certainly wish taxes were easier, and I wish doing it yourself was very simple and didn't take up much time at all. The tax code is probably between 95 and 98% too long. But if you're considering going the DIY route, here are a few considerations. One simple one is higher income usually means higher stakes. So tax mistakes that you make affect you more the higher the tax bracket you're in. As an example, we can compare two tax brackets, the 37% and the 10% bracket. 
if you miss a simple $1,000 deduction in nearly 37% bracket, that's a $370 mistake. And if you're in the 10% bracket, that's only a $100 mistake. 10% of 1,000 is $100. 37% of 1,000 is $370. So again, higher income, higher stakes. And beyond the potential mistakes, right? And I'm not trying to fear monger at all. Like I mentioned, a lot of you are capable of doing it. There's more important items. For a lot of people, it takes a lot of time. And there can be a lot of stress, a lot of documents. And maybe they have other priorities like family or hobbies, hiking or skiing, something like that. Sometimes you can do your return very, very quickly. But I've heard so many horror stories where it takes up, you know, six, eight, 10 hours of time on a weekend or multiple weekends, plus some stress. And at a certain point, we have to ask ourselves as you know, higher earning individuals, is it really worth all that time? Right? After all, we only get so many weekends. For some people, they enjoy it, right? The answer is yes. But for a lot of folks, for a lot of you listening, the answer is no, it's not worth it. One additional thing to consider around that time component is how would we reallocate that time? You know, if not to a hobby or family, maybe a skill. For a lot of us, our biggest asset is our human capital or our future earnings. So what if we took those six or 10 hours in the weekend and instead tried to level up our careers in some way, whether working on a big project at work, taking a course or seminar, building relationships, outsourcing tax prep can save us a lot of time. It could reduce stress. It could potentially save us money in taxes. And who knows, it could potentially improve your earning potential if we reallocated that time and energy to the right place. And here's one little anecdote for people that, you know, that I see that outsource their taxes. A lot of times, once they outsource at one time, they outsource it for the rest of their life. And if you're listening to this, you're probably, again, more than capable of doing your own return. This is not an attack on your financial intelligence at all. Well, for a lot of you that have reached higher levels in your career, the more I tend to vote for outsourcing it, the more it tends to be not worth their time. Again, just because you're able to do something does not mean you should. And the last one, it's a big one that I mentioned early on. I call it the double tax on equity compensation. This pertains to folks in tech who maybe sold employer stock in the last year, which could be ISOs, NSOs, or RSUs. And just to give you an idea, the maximum tax rate in the U.S. is 53%. That's if you're a California resident and you've maxed out the federal and state tax brackets. Therefore, the maximum double tax is double that. So the highest double tax rate you can pay is 106%. That means you could actually pay more in taxes than you actually received if you make this mistake. If you have a $10,000 gain, 53% tax on that is $5,300. So you're still coming home with $4,700. But a 106% tax is $10,600. So that $10,000 bonus or gain, you're losing money now. It's costing you $600. The gist of the double tax is this. When selling employer stock, the income can show up on two separate tax forms, your W-2 and a 1099 from a custodian like Schwab, E-Trade, or Fidelity. Stock sales always show up on a 1099, 
but there is a wage component too when it comes to options and RSUs. Historically, when we're doing our taxes, entering the W-2 and the 1099 as is, is a perfectly fine route to go. But in this case, in these type of transactions, it's not okay. And we want to make sure we have the correct cost basis. And keep in mind, this not only impacts people who prepare their own return, it could affect you if you have a tax preparer that is potentially less knowledgeable in this area. The issue, it stems back to a 2014 IRS rule change where previously the custodians were allowed to adjust the cost basis to the correct version for shareholders. Prior to 2014, it was not that big of a deal. But when the IRS rule change went into effect, it essentially said the custodian just needs to report the initial cost basis and any adjustments to the cost basis is on the tax preparer. Okay, wonderful. Sounds good. But the problem is there's not a big red notice that goes out to these individual taxpayers. If you're receiving and selling RSUs or exercising and selling NSOs, it's not like you get a big red pink pamphlet in the mail from the IRS that says, hey, FYI, this situation might apply to you. No, not at all. It's buried somewhere in the you know, 2 million pages of the IRS tax code or however many it is these days. Again, going back to the double tax, it shows up, the gain shows up on two different tax forms. And the 1099 is usually showing a very, very low or no cost basis. So going back to that $10,000 example, if you're selling RSUs and the 1099 shows a $10,000 gain, that's wonderful, right? But on your W-2, that might show up as $10,000 of wage income as well. So the key here is to look closer at the 1099. It would also show up, like I mentioned, as $10,000 but the cost basis is potentially very low or non-existent. Many times you see a zero for the cost basis. And if you see a zero for a cost basis, usually I would hesitate to enter that. So if you see that, the next thing you need to do is to find the correct cost basis number. A lot of times these days, it's actually on that same form, but it's a few pages down in a different section titled supplemental data or additional information, something like that. But sometimes it's not there and you might need to go with company provided records such as an Excel or PDF document, or you might even need to refer back to your W-2 to do some comparing there. And in the event you do find this, it's not that big of a deal. You don't need to you know, call your employer or your HR, have them adjust things, or you don't need to call the custodian, E-Trade or Fidelity. You just need to make the adjustment on your tax return. And typically you make that adjustment on the form 8949. Going back a little bit to point number six, generally, I would advise outsourcing your tax return. The more you get involved with equity compensation, the more it makes sense to outsource. But if you are on your own, you can certainly look out for it, right? If you see a super low cost basis, or if you feel like all of your money is going to the IRS, you might be right. We actually wrote an entire blog post on this. If you'd like to learn more, you can go to the blog at modernfp.com slash blog slash double tax. Or you could probably Google double tax equity compensation. I believe it's one of the top listings there. You can find the link in our show notes as well. 
We really hope you enjoyed the seven key insights to alleviate tax season pain, not just for this tax season, but for the next one as well. Should you have any questions or feedback, please reach out. I'd love to hear from you. For all the links and resources mentioned today, please head over to tpfpodcast.com. Again, the TPF is for Tech Personal Finance, tpfpodcast.com. 